Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. I am Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Woolwine are doing this OITE review series. We are continuing on with trauma, and we're uh, talking a little bit about some pelvis stuff. Now, if you haven't already, please go and follow us on Instagram at Nailed It Ortho. Click the link in the description to get access to our podcast companion book, which we are in the works of making. So maybe a little while before it comes out. But nonetheless, you'll still get a little early access to it and maybe some uh, some other things as well. And uh, without further ado, please hit that subscribe button and enjoy our continuation of our OITE review series. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. What is a what source of bleeding is the most likely cause of the hemorrhage in the pelvic ring injuries? Yeah, so you know that patient that comes in hypotensive, obvious pelvic injury. The most common cause of bleeding actually are going to be kind of from the venous, uh, from the venous posterior plexus. Uh, this is going to be more about eighty-five percent of the time. So it's more common cause of bleeding is going to be actually venous bleeding in these pelvic injuries, and that's about eighty-five percent of the time. And then arterial accounts for the other fifteen percent of the time. And when it is an arterial injury, the most common uh, artery it is going to be the superior gluteal artery. That is the most common. Um, and and I just wanted to touch on that on that point that you were talking about a little bit earlier about resuscitation. That is definitely what you need to do when you're treating these pelvic injuries in that one-to-one-to-one ratio. And the stabilization with the binder, I've heard differing things from different attendings, but uh, just like just like you said, any APC type injury definitely needs a pelvic binder. And then just like you were saying, so with a lateral compression, sometimes you want to be careful about putting a binder on because it could actually accentuate, uh, accentuate that injury. Uh, so I just wanted to reiterate what you were talking about. Um, but so what are some of the, you know, we just spoke about the most common cause of bleeding they're going to be the posterior venous plexuses. Uh, what are the, what's the indications for angiography or embolization? Let's see here. So indications for angiography and embolization, um, they are variable. They're not highly likely to be tested just because there's no uh, absolute indication versus absolute contraindication. But the superior gluteal artery is uh, usually the main target of those uh, embolizations. And the problems with that is you have the complications from uh, like gluteal necrosis and impotence. Uh, and especially if you are uh, kind of accessing the posterior pelvis or posterior acetabulum, that gluteal necrosis uh, can cause uh, wound infection, uh, infected hardware, and really just a bad overall outcome for these patients. Um, and so uh, what are some other ways other than angiography and embolization, what are some other ways in the ER to acutely stabilize these patients? Yeah. And again, the thing that we have been touching on many times now is going to be application of a pelvic binder, or if you're at an institution that you don't have a pelvic binder, a sheet, a wrapped sheet. And there's actually a good, um, there's a good article going over um, the actual sheeting technique. I, I, I wish I had brought it up, but if you, if you look it up on, uh, PubMed, there's an article that talks about, you know, the technique for um, ap applying a pelvic sheet 
in these uh, in these patients that have uh, unstable pelvis injuries. But anyways, first thing you want to, you know, things you can do, wrap a sheet or a pelvic binder, and you want this binder to be centered around the greater trochanter. So again, these are going to help your APC or your unstable external rotation type injuries. Uh, another thing that can be done, I haven't seen done too often, is going to be pelvic packing, which kind of provides that tamponade effect and, and helping stop the bleeding. Uh, you can do skeletal traction for vertically unstable fractures. So again, you're looking at your outlet view and you see that one stabus is one pelvis is one hemi pelvis is higher than the other. You can use um, skeletal traction that can um, uh, that can help bring that hemi pelvis down these vertically unstable fractures and also external fixation. Uh, you know, some uh, I know there are some reports of people um, putting X fixes on in the ED. Those kind of those iliac crest. Uh, pins, uh, the super acetabular pins. I'm not sure how many people are doing that that often in the ED, but it's also <laughs> something you can do in the in the OR uh, to help close that intrapelvic volume and, and decrease, you know, that that continuous bleeding. Um, and and it, it was funny. Our, our next question again is uh, is another reiteration of what do you do in a hemodynamically unstable patient with an external rotation APC injury? So again, so especially they come in. Their blood pressure is 60s over 40s. He's a motorcycle collision. He got hit by a truck and, you know, they just noticed an obvious injury. And what, what is the first thing that we should do if we should not, if we have not harped on this enough? Is that pelvic binder or sheet? That is, I mean, that is the key thing. I mean, that that's really just a part of your uh, ATLS uh, protocol and, um, I mean, being the orthopedic surgeon down in the ER, you're the one that's kind of responsible for these sort of injuries and making sure that they do not go uh, missed. Um, so that is the, uh, the key thing. And then um, can using a binder um, kind of mask an injury on a CT scan? Yeah, of course. So, you know, if, if they have a binder and when they come on and they go through the scanner and you take a look at it, you, you'll sometimes you can say oh they they may not actually have a their, their injury may not be as bad but you got to think that binder is closing down that intrapelvic inter volume and can easily mask a pelvic ring injury uh when you're looking at a ct scan so do not forget or do not make that rookie mistake by looking at the ct while they have the binder on and saying oh this injury is not that bad uh, because if that binder comes off, sometimes you can see the real injury, or if you take them to the OR and do an examination of under anesthesia, you will see how you can sometimes see how bad that injury really is. Now, when ideally should an X fix be applied if a patient is going to the OR to follow, you know, some type of viscous or bowel injury? So, say for example, they're going to go for an X lap, and what is kind of the ideal time an X fix should be applied? And I don't know if this happens in all the institutions, but in a perfect world, what, what, what would that be? Yes, in a perfect world, the X-Fix would be applied. So ideally before, just because um, uh, the general surgery trauma colleagues, they uh, like to use a lot of abdominal packing and uh, kind of leaving the abdomen open and going back for a second look. 24 to 48 hours later. The problem with that is if they pack against an unstable pelvis, um, one, it's not going to provide the packing or the tamponade effect that they're looking for, but it also can worsen that unstable pelvic ring injury. 
Um, so you're not really packing against the closed volume. So if you are able to close that volume down with an external fixator, they can at least pack and get that tamponade effect they're looking for. Um, and then uh, for the X-Fix, uh, what uh, sort of uh, corridors or style of pins uh, are you using? Yeah, so we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, many the two most commons that, that I've seen or I've heard of are going to be the super acetabular pins and then the iliac crest pins. And so, you know, when you're looking at an x ray and you're, you're putting these in and you're trying to think of what views can you utilize uh, when you're placing these screws, is one when you're looking at acetabular pins, that's going to be that obturator outlet that we were talking about a little bit earlier. This is a which is you kind of have that obturator oblique, but you have that outlet uh, outlet tilt to it. So it's almost like you're kind of staring at the outlet. I'm sorry, staring at that obturator and you're looking at that teardrop or that LC2 corridor. So that is one of the um, views you can use to help with your super acetabular pin placement. Uh, and again, you can use the 90 degree opposite of that, which is going to be the obturator inlet. So you switch from an outlet to an inlet, and that is going to make sure your pin is within your inner and your outer tables. And then you can also use when you're placing these super acetabular pins, you use your iliac oblique to make sure your pin is above the acetabulum. So just to reiterate, when you're placing your super acetabular X-Fix pins, uh, you can use your obturator outlet to help with your starting point. And you can look at, you see that nice teardrop, um, which is going from the AIS to the posterior uh, PSIS. And then you can use your obturator inlet to make sure your pins are within the inner and outer tables. And then you can use your iliac oblique to make sure your pin is above the acetabulum. Now we talk about placing X fixes, uh, but you know these don't come without any risks. So, what are some of the risks of these X fix pin placements? Oh yeah, so uh, with the uh, super acetabular pin, um, I mean a lot of these are done via percutaneous means, and so uh, the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve injury for that kind of thigh numbness is the most common and the uh, heterotopic ossification around these pin sites. And a lot of that is really seen with the infix uh, uh, components where everything is done subcutaneously, um, but you can still see these same problems happen with the uh, traditional uh, supraacetabular X-fix pin placements. Um, and then, what are uh, some other acute fixation options for these pelvic ring injuries? Yeah, so pretty much one thing you just said was that that infix, and if you haven't heard of that infix, that's that subcutaneous anterior pelvic fixation. So those are one of the, another option, and another option is a pelvic C-clamp, um, which I have not seen actually being used before, but that kind of helps with posterior ring injuries. Have you have you ever seen those either the infix or the pelvic C clamp used over there in uh, Cali? No, we yeah, we're just the kind of traditional supraacetabular uh, external fixator, and we don't even really do the iliac uh, crest or iliac wing style. Yeah, fix in the emergency setting. Yeah, pretty, pretty very similar. You don't have as much. Um, uh, much uh, stability or as much control with those iliac crest pins as you do with those super acetabular pins. And um, and I know you mentioned uh, something with infix, but just to harp on it again, what are some of the complications uh, that are seen with infix placement? Yeah, so with the infix, um, 
the heterotopic ossification is uh, most common. Um, and then another problem is, uh, as you can kind of imagine that if you're trying to get everything subcutaneous and very close to the skin, uh, you're, uh, you run the risk of compressing on that femoral nerve. So a femoral nerve palsy. Um, and what are some predictors for mort mortality? Yeah, and in, in patients that have these pelvic ring injuries, again, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but just to reiterate, um, patients that have massive uh, major hemorrhage that require multiple uh, units of blood transfusions, patients that have a, that are severe polytrauma, you know, these patients with these high injury severity scores. Um, actually, if you are a male and if you are older age, so those are some of the predictions for mortality, major hemorrhage, severe polytrauma, if you are of male sex, or, or male gender, and if you are of older age. Now, what, you know, now let's kind of switch gears and talking to treatment of these pelvic ring injuries. Uh, what are some of the, what, what fracture patterns are amenable to non-op treatment? And then what is that non-op treatment? Yeah, so the uh, APC and a lot of LC1 uh, injuries typically can be managed non-operatively. So the APC ones less than two and a half centimeters of displacement uh, of that pubic symphysis. And then uh, LC1s that are associated with the uh, kind of incomplete sacral fractures uh, with the ipsilateral rami. And um, a lot of that is really just a trial of uh, conservative weight bearing, um, getting repeat images uh, once they do attempt weight bearing with physical therapy, just to make sure that nothing has uh, displaced. And um, one thing that I th actually think it just came up on last year's OIT uh, was the uh, flamingo view. And what the flamingo views are is if you truly think that they have a, a stable pelvic ring and you want to prove it is you have the patient take an AP pelvis standing on their uninjured side uh, and then standing on their injured side and making sure that there is no vertical displacement of that pelvic ring injury. So key thing, remember what flamingo views are. You're kind of standing like a flamingo while getting x-rays done. Um, and going on to APC2 pelvic ring injuries, what are some general uh, surgical treatment options? Yeah, so there, there are many ways to treat these, but pretty much, you know, you want some type of anterior fixation and then dealer's choice. There are a lot of different um, options, but plus or minus some posterior screw fixation. So there may be uh, some injuries that that additional posterior screw fixation may help um, provide some stability. So what about uh, APC3 injuries? And APC2, uh, if, if we recall, these are those injuries with greater than 2.5 millimeters of diastasis, as well as um, that anterior uh, SI joint widening or that anterior SI joint injury. So what are, what are some surgical options for our APC3 injuries? Yeah, yeah. So APC3, um, definitely want anterior and posterior fixation uh, for these, uh, just because of the uh, complete disruption of the posterior SI a ligament complex, so an anterior plate over the uh, bilateral uh, superior pubic rami, and then some sort of posterior fixation is necessary for these, whether that's uh, multiple SI screws versus a sacroiliac bar versus uh, some sort of posterior uh, tension band plating um, for these. And uh, 
I mean, we've we've really talked a lot about the the pelvic ring injuries. We haven't focused a lot on the sacral fractures themselves. Uh, so, what are what's one of the sacral fracture classification systems that's commonly used? Yeah, it's going to be that Denis. Uh, may have, I hope I pronounced it right, the knee classification <laughs> system for sacral fractures. And it's divided into one, two, and three. So the knee one is going to be, it's divided based on where the fracture line is relative to the neural foramen. So if it's lateral to the neural, neural foramen, it's going to be one. If it's within the neural foramen, it's going to be two. And if it's medial to the neural, neural foramen, it's going to be three. And, and why is that important? What are the, uh, the rates of uh, neurological injuries and sacral fractures based on location of the fracture? And I know these, this is based on some, some older studies, but you know, what are, what are, um, what are some of those uh, neurological injury rates for these different zones? Yep, so for zone one, lateral to the neural foramen, uh, it's about 5%, 20 to 30% for zone two, and then up to 60% for zone three, and can be associated with cognitive equina syndrome. And the, uh, the key with this is, I mean, it is still tested, but it's like you, like you said, it's a little bit outdated just because when, when Denis went through this classification system, they only had x-rays. They didn't have the CT scan. And so for these non-displaced or minimally displaced zone two and zone three injuries, it's really tough to pick these up on x-ray. And so uh, our CT scan has kind of allowed us to uncover and, and find these a little bit more commonly. And so I think that the actual rate of neural injury is probably less than what's reported out there. But uh, for now, keys are 5% for zone one, 20 to 30% for zone two, and 60% for zone three. And uh, when, you're, when you're looking at these, what sort of uh, fracture uh, patterns are amenable to non-operative treatment? Yeah, so when you know these patients have these sacral fractures, you know, anything stable. So these stable, minimally displaced fractures or incomplete fractures are all fractures that may be amenable to non-operative treatment versus if you have a displaced sacral fracture, those are typically uh, going to be treated operatively. And I know we, we talked a little bit about earlier the different um, uh the different pathways as far as, you know, the upper sacral segment um, and the second, uh, the lower sacral segment, but what nerve root is going to be at risk when you're play, you know, we have a displaced sacral fraction, we're going to fix it. So what nerve root is going to be uh, at risk during placement of your S1 screw? And then how will you note that on, uh, on physical exam? Yeah. So that L5 nerve root is going to drape right over the uh, kind of anterior border of the sacrum right at that S1 screw placement level, and you're going to be uh, cognizant of uh, being able, that patient being able to extend their great toe uh, through EHL um, to help identify uh, L5 nerve root injury. Um, and then if you, <laughs> if, if there is uh, some neural injury that you notice, um, when can you uh, kind of do an open foraminal decompression uh, for these sacral fractures? Yeah, those are going to be our zone two fractures, uh, you know, the fractures that go right through the, the neural foramen because that's, you know, that's right where the nerve is coming out. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes open foraminal decompressions can be used. Not every time that they are used for, for these fractures, but sometimes they can be used in these zone two injuries. 
Now, if a patient has bilateral sacral fractures, you know, you look at the CT scan or, or they just you get called and consulted and say, oh, they have bilateral sacral fractures. What should you be on high alert for and want to make sure that you look for in every single patient? Yeah, so the uh, most concerning thing when, you, when you're looking at the axial and they have bilateral uh, sacral fractures is uh, the possibility of spinal pelvic dissociation. And so you're going to kind of note uh, looking at your axials, then you're going to want to go to your sagittal cuts and look for any U-type uh, connection between those bilateral sacral fractures. And uh, the treatment for that is uh, that kind of triangular osteosynthesis or lumbopelvic fixation. Um, and I mean, the, the problem with that, or I mean, the good part of that is it provides a very stable posterior fixation, but it is associated with a high rate of hardware prominence and pain just because, uh, I mean, if you just feel kind of back in that, uh, sacral lumbar region, uh, back there, a lot of us are very subcutaneous and you can palpate all of those bony prominences. So trying to put some hardware back there can can cause a lot of hardware prominence. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure that's annoying. <laughs> I'm sure it's very annoying if you have that, that hardware placed. Yeah. So no thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think we, uh, I, I talked about this a little bit before, so I'll just kind of go over this next question is, so for persistent instability, instability after pelvic fixation or even uh, prior to if you're trying to determine non-operative treatment for some of these pelvic ring injuries, uh, you can do a single leg stance x-ray called the flamingo radiograph, uh, like I briefly talked about before, that can help uh, see if there is any superior inferior translation of the uh, pelvis uh, with the patient standing or, or bearing weight. So I think that kind of concludes the uh, pelvic ring portion of this. So um, let's uh, move, move along to the uh, acetabulum. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, our OIT review series. Now, if you can, please do us one of two things. One would be please share this with one other person. Share this with one other co-resident, a resident you know, a co-fellow. If you're an attending, share it with somebody else. That would help us out a lot. And then second is please and go and leave us a review. If you listen to Spotify, leave us a review there. If you listen to iTunes, leave, leave us a review there. We are almost close to 100 reviews. So... Uh, maybe you can be one of these last few people that get us there. Until next time.